Kalle non bonni, so scimica. C'è qualcuno là fuori? C'è qualcuno là fuori? Benvenuti al Christian Podcast. my friends welcome to another episode of the those who belong to the party of the anointed podcast <laughs> my name is Beto Gudinho and I bring you weekly God thinkers to talk about matters of faith Christianity and culture through the lens of emoji reactions yes I said that emoji reactions that range from blasphemous to divine. So, Christianity wasn't the movement Jesus formed when he walked on this earth. Actually, it wasn't until 200 years after Christ that Christianity was quote-unquote born. So, what happened in those 200 years after Jesus, before Christianity... What happened? Well, that's precisely today's episode, what it's going to be about. The in-between years after Jesus, before Christianity. And today we have a special guest who's the author of this book I have right here in my hands called exactly that. Well, one of the authors, but you're, she's the first one. So I wanted to talk to the first one on the list. Uh, so she'll be with us and the book if you're seeing it right now we're on Spotify we're everywhere now you can see videos too um, so look down look at the video and check this out after Jesus before Christianity Aaron Vercombe I think I got it right uh, welcome to the show how are you doing today I'm doing really well thanks thanks so much for having me on the show awesome I'm excited for this conversation so before we get started Before we go any further, can you introduce us a little bit to who you are and a little bit of what you do? For sure. So hi, everybody. It's great to be chatting with you today. My name is Erin, and I'm here today because uh, I'm one of the authors of After Jesus Before Christianity, uh, which is a new book that came out from Harper One that we're super excited about. Uh, I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of Toronto in Ontario, Canada, and I was brought on to the book project because I have a PhD in the study of religion with a specialty, a special focus on these early centuries of Jesus movements. I have a degree both in ancient Judaism and in Christian origins, and I also have a, a specialty in writing. I've been a writing instructor for uh, many years now, both at the University of Toronto and at Princeton University, and Western Institute brought me on to help them write this book, which is a product of uh, a whole bunch of years of scholarship that Uh, researchers that were members of the Christianity Seminar with the Westar Institute did. So it was my job to bring the voices of these researchers to you through this, this book on behalf of the Christianity Seminar. So it's a really cool project that represents the latest scholarly research on this really important topic. I love it. This very important topic, that's true right there. And before we go any further... Um, my friend, this is what I do. 
<laughs> so here on the show, I got the book. And this is my emoji reaction to the book. So imagine we're like on Facebook, the book pops up, I read it, and then I get to choose from the five emojis, and then I go to the emoji tombola. Now, well, we're just going to see, okay? So we're going to see what happens with the emoji tombola. And just so you can see, I'm going to let you in on this screen, on my virtual background, so that you can see my emojis, because you want to see who those are. All right, nice. so I'm showing the emojis right there. There's a whole spectrum. And I'm going to the emoji tombola. And I'm going to ask the gods of Emojitron to reveal the emoji. Ho ho. Gods of Emojitron, can you reveal the emoji reaction we're going to give today? Okay, the tombola is going on. And it's a blasphemous, what? blasphemous <laughs> emoji. Okay. All right. Now, let's go back to our guest, Erin. <laughs> How do you feel about getting a blasphemous emoji reaction? Wow. I, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty shocking emoji. But there is a lot of material in this book that um, that is shocking, I think, to many readers. And I'm looking forward to talking through those topics because at the end, I think that the content of this book is is hopeful. That's the overall message that we're hoping readers will receive, that when we hear these new voices from the past and when we see Jesus and Jesus followers in these different ways, it will give us hope for ourselves and our own voices that they're going to be heard in the present so we'll see we'll see how the conversation goes and where <laughs> this emoji takes us i think it's exciting it's a good starting point for discussion for sure okay yeah and that's why they are emojis because they let us in into a conversation and it's react it's it's a reaction but at the same time we can still have a conversation and i think that's the purpose of this podcast at least, yeah. even though for today I might have to change the name, <laughs> but we're going to have a great time. So, Aaron, um, I think, first of all, can you tell me, do you perceive Jesus as a historical character? Like, is he like, was Jesus on earth? Is that something like we could almost like agree upon before we get started the conversation? Or would you say, oh, well, maybe or no, what's what what would be your answer if? To Jesus, is Jesus a historical character? Absolutely, yes. I certainly think that Jesus is a historical figure. And we do have evidence for Jesus' existence here on earth in, in lots of different forms. So as a starting point, for sure, yes, Jesus was uh, an individual who lived early in the first century of the Common Era and uh, taught lots of things to different people, had a really important voice, was crucified by the Romans under the Roman Empire, and then lots of different people decided that they wanted to honor his memory, his life, his teachings in, in different kinds of ways. So for sure, yes. Wow. Okay. So we're on to, to an amazing chat. So I have, I mean, as I'm reading the book, I had just like a list of so many Um, I was actually listening to the book for a big part of it because um, it, it's pretty lengthy. But I, I love, mm -hmm. I mean, some of the, the research, the investigation behind it. I was like, wow, this is amazing. But it did bring like a lot of 
um, reactions as I'm reading it, mm-hmm. and and I think for a good purpose, you know. And and when people pitch the book to me, they say this is a provocative perspective. So I'm like, okay, provocative. I'm I'm curious. So I love to approach reading this book from that perspective of curiosity. But then I don't know if it was sometimes. So I'll say this before I I go any further. I do feel like uh, as a believer or as a follower of Christ or a Christian, I would like give for sure the the benefit of the doubt, if you would call it like that, that most of my assumptions about Christianity have been uh, for the, I guess you could say westernized, right? So, but even though I grew up in Mexico, but I grew up in, you know, out of all the, the different ramifications. I grew up more like in the Protestant um, type of church growing up and whatnot. Um, but nonetheless, I feel like I acknowledge a lot of my my understandings about Jesus have been probably westernized Christianity. So there is a part of me that wanted to separate Jesus from Christianity. And even with this podcast, you know, I felt like, Oh man, I didn't want to use that name, Christian Podcast. But at the same time, I felt like was the the best name I can think of that could where I could still talk about Jesus and about the conversation of who he was. Uh because for some no, for all the historical elements, I feel like the word Christ is still so related like to to who Jesus was, you know? So I could have named this podcast, maybe the Jesus podcast or something, but uh, I actually like the topic of like Christianity overall. So I feel like I'm almost in agreement when I was reading in the book that the word Christian, Christian would be somewhat problematic. So Aaron, that was kind of like a long introduction to this question, but um, when we think of the word itself, like Christian, is that a problematic word in today's day and age? It is. And that's such a, a great question. And it's really the the backbone question of the book as a whole. And what we what we name things, what we call things, the categories we put them in, those names have such an impact on how we understand them and how we relate to them. So we have to be really careful about our naming practices. Um, and we have to be really thoughtful when we think about names as well. So Christian, yeah, not a term that we see used very often in the first two centuries of the common era. So the first two centuries after Jesus lived, we find a ton of wildly different names for the different groups that followed Jesus Usually Christian, when it appears, it's a term that is used by others to refer to Jesus' followers, um, rather than a term that these groups use to name themselves. So I think that's a really important consideration. Um, It's a term that we actually see the Romans calling these groups of people fairly early on. So one of our earliest records is of this this, uh, provincial governor who's writing to the emperor Trajan, the emperor at the time, asking for his advice on what to do with these people that he calls Christians, which was not a a Roman term. It was not a Latin term. Um, It's a term that he's taking from Greek and not translating. So he's using it as this foreign word, the strange word that he's using to other these people, 
which I think is a really important point as well. He's using this term to make them seem extra strange to the emperor. And that's, you know, emperor, not a big fan of strange things. So we, we see something really interesting going on there. We see this, this term also used politically. So earlier you, uh, I think you introduced the podcast as the, the members of the party of the anointed podcast, yes. which is a great <laughs> term. Yeah. And, and that's the most literal translation of the word Christian. Christ, Christ, that that's, refers to an anointing process, an anointing with oil. And the EN at the end has this political overtone of a party, so those who belong to the party of the anointed. So that's really important. That indicates that some of these groups are really political, interested in resisting the Roman Empire, which was the dominant political force at the time, for sure. But other groups use lots of different names. We have groups called the Way. We have groups that didn't refer to themselves with a name at all. We have groups calling themselves the enslaved of God. Uh, so lots of different terms. It, it's hard to to pick any term that would unify these groups. And and I think that's part of the point that these groups just weren't unified at the time. They were thinking themselves of themselves in such different ways. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I I can understand that. Let's say you no know, historic Jesus dies on a cross, and then for about two hundred years, it's almost like the people that were following him. It, they're scattered, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the things. And they're trying to understand their their following of Jesus, their belief, their who this guy was. So what you're saying is that um, this, this had so many ramifications that it wasn't until like later on, like 200 years later, that they actually became under the, the label for, you know, just for lack of a better term, and uh, to, to name it like Christianity, But also, this was a term that they never referred to it themselves. Exactly. Right? And so yeah. there's, a, there's a part where you're talking about like the book of Acts, where uh, I guess the traditional Christian understanding, or, you know, the, well, I'm just saying in my perspective, right, um, was that the, the first Christians were named Christian, and we can read it in the book of Acts. But it almost seems like mm -hmm. when, when I was reading after Jesus, before Christianity, that there was almost like a different tone to that, not necessarily, they weren't necessarily calling them Christians. Could you elaborate a little bit on what that means when, you know, the book of Acts may not have been actually labeling Christians Christians when in Antioch? No. As a Christian, I grew up like, no, in Antioch, that's when we first called Christians Christians, right? Um, yeah. But is it not the case? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really subtle point in the book of Acts that we have to recognize. We do have the passage that says, you know, they were first called Christians. And again, we note that this is a term that people are calling them. So they were first called Christians by others. That's a name that um, that other people assigned mm. to these groups that they were seeing um, in this case in, in Antioch. Right. So um, just that kind of subtle, subtle use of language, I think makes a big difference to how we, we read this, uh, this particular term. We also see um, 
you know, most of our translations of, of Acts, depending on the language in which we're, we're reading these books, um, you know, Acts 26, we also see uh, a reference that tends to be um, translated as, as Christian in many Bibles. But if we break the term down and we read it in, in its more authentic translation, right, one who belongs to the party of the anointed, we get this really different picture of what's going on. So um, Paul is having this conversation with, with King Agrippa and Agrippa is like, Paul, are you trying to persuade me to become Christian? That's how we tend to read that passage. But something really interesting happens when we translate it from the Greek. Are you, so are you trying to persuade me to belong to the party of the anointed? Ooh, like that's a, that's a pretty dangerous claim. Are you, are you trying to, to persuade me to resist empire? What's going on here? And, and Paul, you know, Paul's like, whoa, hang on a second. Let's not, uh, let's not go quite so far. Um, so yeah, different, different situations in, in Acts for sure. We do see the naming of Christian, uh, but we also see, um, a couple of places where we want to be careful about how we're translating that term. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. And I mean, you talk, I mean, for sure on the book, you elaborate on like, even like the word transliteration and, mm -hmm. you know, all of that, like where words come from and how we, we translate from one language to the other. And then how in the early, you know, Jesus times or Jesus movements, even language was, uh, no, the more prominent languages would have been Greek or Latin or like like mm -hmm. this. Uh, it's now they're like ancient languages, right? Um, mm -hmm. So even like translating from one to the other, and then the maybe even like the loss of meaning as you translate. So I mean, all of that um, I feel kind of makes sense in my head. Um, and there's also something that I I really liked about the book. Even though, like I'm saying, you know, like a lot of it is just like I'm reacting to it and, and it's like, whoa, 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 like there's a lot of stuff here that I didn't grow up like, um, I didn't grow up like, pain. I don't know. No, I, like mm -hmm. I said, and I have my, I grew up like, no, this is Christ and this is this and that, right? And, and it was almost like, um, well, anyways, I'll tell you what I love about what you guys do in the book uh, and it's called Building Backwards. And I still, mm. I, I'm a little skeptical still, but I kind of like the idea. So building backwards, uh, I'll tell you what I think it means, and then you can tell me you know, whether I'm right or wrong. But it's almost like you talk about a building having uh, this, this place on the top where you can get to see the city, right? And that's kind of like what Christianity is now. It's you're on the balcony of this high sky riser, and then you're looking at a beautiful city and we interpret Christianity from almost like from the top down, like this is where we're at. And then we unravel where we've, how we got here as we look back into history. But what you say kind of like in the book is uh, if we actually, instead of building, like we typically build like from the foundation to the top, if you start building backwards, you realize that it could have, these early movements could have expanded into like all these different movements that wouldn't have necessarily ended up on this top of sky riser named Christianity. Right. So something mm -hmm. like that. So, um, am I right or wrong? What is building backwards? How would you, um, uh, maybe clarify that for us? 
Yeah, you're, that's right, for sure. And, and I noticed that you used the word skeptical, so I don't know if we're moving to the skeptical emoticon. Maybe we've moved up to skeptical. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll go through the emojis um, at the end oh, of the yeah, show I'm with you. With but the emojis, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you also noted at the beginning of the podcast how important curiosity is, and, and that's where we began this book project as well. We, we were fundamentally curious about these first two centuries of the common era. And we wanted to, we wanted to approach them with as open a mind minds as we possibly could. And of course, you know, we, we all exist in our present moments. Obviously we're all situated in our current uh, physical, geographical, intellectual, cultural locations. And it's not like we can just forget everything we know and, and start with some kind of clean slate. But as much as possible, we wanted to take away assumptions about what was the distant Christian future at that point, because futures are not inevitable. We wanted, instead of locating ourselves at the center in our present and looking backwards, thinking about how can we see ourselves in the past How can we understand what we know now in terms of what was going on then? We wanted to to not assume anything about the future and and start as much as possible with with an openness, not assuming anything about where belief was going to go, where practice was going to go, how baptism was going to develop or the Eucharist was going to develop, Just, just starting from when Jesus died and seeing what all of these writings from the first two centuries could tell us, what available archaeological evidence could tell us. So it was, it was really a, an experiment to see if we could set aside the things we think we know, the story that we tell ourselves about Christianity and, and how it developed as this unified single entity right from the beginning, and, and question and question and, and keep keep questioning even the things that we thought that we deeply, deeply knew. And we found some really exciting things as a result, some things that I don't think that we would have found if, if we would have remained in this state of, of this is who I am, this is what I know, I'm going to stick with that as, as much as possible. So, yeah, it was this experiment in reading forward with an open future, assuming that the future is not inevitable but still full of many different possibilities for how Jesus movements and followers and schools might develop. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'll tell you a little bit of why I felt a little skeptical um, because even as I thought, I like the idea. I, I almost call it deconstruction. Right. Um, and I think that has a part to do with it. And especially, I mean, people I've had on the show, I feel like it's a thing going on, deconstruction. Mm-hmm. I'm deconstructing my faith and I'm deconstructing uh, colonialism, I decon- like all kinds of stuff, right? So in a sense, I almost feel like it's deconstructing Christianity. And I'm okay with that because like I said, you know, I, I, I feel like Jesus is almost like set apart from Christianity, even though it, they're just intertwined, right? For now. <laughs> but... Um, why am I skeptical is because I was thinking when, when I'm reading this and I'm like, wow, as, as much as I feel like it's, it's fun and it's experimental and it's about like looking at the past with the possibilities of a different future. 
what kept popping in my mind is yes, but the dream, it, it when you start building, you start with the dream. You start with how it can look like. And I thought, what if that's kind of like what even Jesus was thinking of when he started building? What if he already positioned himself, imagining himself on the top of a building, looking at a beautiful city mm. and mm -hmm. then constructing it and then saying, okay, now we can get to be in this balcony and look around and it's amazing. So I feel like most dreams start like that. They start with the like a vision of what the future could be. And I think that's the only element that I feel like, oh, I love it, but at the same time, what if being on that balcony on the top of that skyscraper is part of somebody's dream? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's okay. What What do you think of that? I mean, uh, uh, are you okay with uh, skepticism? Are you okay with... Uh, Absolutely, uh, yeah. Um, and, and there are a couple of points that I'd want to make about deconstruction and also about the dream. I mean, I, I think it, it's, it's clear from the writings that we have from these first two centuries that Jesus did have a dream for what society could look like, ideally, what the kingdom of God could and should look like. And it's so important that that's the focus of a, a lot of our research, trying to figure out what exactly this, this kingdom of God was that Jesus had in mind and that Jesus talked about so much across these different writings. So definitely, I think that's super important um, and really important when we're talking about this process of, of deconstruction too. I think it's, I think it's such a, an important but a challenging word for us because I, I think deconstruction, when we deconstruct something, it, it leaves us with pieces at the end, um, just pieces. And that can be a really, it can be a potentially negative experience. It can be an experience more of, of absence rather than presence of a, a certain, you know, emptiness rather than richness. And we talked a lot about that concept when we were writing this book because we we were worried about about this exact thing, this this idea of deconstruction and and what are we leaving readers with? Is is there a sense of just things in pieces? Um, because that's definitely not what we intended and, and it's not, I think, what we see on the ground in the first two centuries. There there is a lot of diversity. We don't see this unified uh, single group of people who all adhered, adhered to the same practices and the same beliefs. We, we don't see that, but we do see these really interesting and strong communities coming together in different ways in order to make their lives better and stronger and safer, more grounded on communal principles of fellowship and love in the face of persecution under the Roman empire. And they're doing this in, in these different kinds of ways, but, but on the ground, we do see this move to, to create community, to create bonds. And I, I think that that that's really positive and exciting and, and rich. So hopefully, even though this is, as you say, a process of, of deconstruction at the end, we're left with something something constructed, something positive, something really tangible and meaningful rather than these, these disparate pieces. Yes. So that leads me to, I have two ideas that I want to pair. So one is, 
if not Christianity, then what? Right? And but also I feel like on on what is the word? Unequivocally on something with an un because um, I'm from Mexico, so I speak Spanish. Uh, that's my first language. So sometimes I'm trying to find the word in English and I can't find it. Um, but anyways, unequivocally, unequivocally. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Anyways, if it's not Christianity, what then? But then as soon as I say that, this other word pops up. And I know you have you know, some thoughts on it, but it's the word heresy. So if not Christianity, then what, Erin? Can you elaborate? <laughs> Yeah, again, so much of, of what we're doing in this book is, is trying to deal with these names that we assign to to groups and to concepts because the, the names have so much power over how we understand them, how we think about them, how we talk about them. So we have a whole chapter in the book called If Not Christian, What? And there's no one conclusion to this chapter. Spoiler alert. <laughs> there isn't. <laughs> there isn't one new category that we've invented and um, part of our, our point is, is to say, well, there's, there's a lot more diversity here. Um, so throughout the book, we try to avoid using one term. Um, it, it's tricky because in, in scholarship as, as well, professors and, and students of biblical studies, we're, we're still using this term Christian and, and people are like, well, we know this doesn't really apply, but we don't have another word. So we're still going to use the term Christian anyway. It's, it's you know, um, it's that that trick of, of naming. So we try in the book to use a lot of different terms that better represent the diversity of these groups in the first two centuries. So we have parties of the anointed. We have Jesus school schools. We have... Um, members of Jesus clubs, associations. Um, we have the enslaved of God. We have the way there, there are all of these, these different groups. So using any one word or one label really doesn't do justice um, to what was going on in the first two centuries. So there isn't one replacement term. Um, instead, we, we try to vary our vocabulary as, as much as possible and and sometimes that might be confusing sometimes it confused us as well it's a it's a tricky process but we really wanted to avoid assigning any new category here because that just wouldn't be um, an accurate representation of what was going on and we often the two most powerful labels i think historically that we've used are these labels of um, christian or heresy right? Are you a Christian? If you're not a Christian, you're a heretic. It was, you know, a kind of us or them. Yes, no, very um, binary situation. Um, heresy is a term that came to have a, a negative connotation later on after the first two centuries, a term that was applied to, to people and, and groups who those in power thought weren't, um, weren't doing what they were supposed to do or, or weren't believing what they were supposed to believe. But in the first two centuries, heresy is a word that really just means choice um, without any kind of positive, negative connotation. Um, it was a much more neutral term. Um, so again, I, I just want to encourage us to think, especially in the first two centuries, not 
um, not of good or bad, right or wrong belief. We, we don't see that at all. We see people doing lots of different things and believing lots of different things, but these weren't right or wrong. These were just their first and early responses to um, to Jesus, who they thought Jesus was or who what they thought the kingdom of God was and how it should be represented on earth. So not not a not a right or wrong situation early on, uh, just a matter of, of difference. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what um, heretic means choice mm-hmm. uh okay and wow it's, i have so much but um let's see how much i can cover and maybe i'll just throw some terms that i that i kind of popped up as i was reading the you know the book and let's see if as we move on to like the next question i have if some of these can you know somehow participate but uh And some, I also like some of this. I just wrote, and I, I, I just kind of wanted to learn a little about a little bit more about what they mean. So, like anachronistics, um, self baptism of Thecla, uh, Jesus groups following orthopraxy, not not orthodoxy. Then Gnosticism is not Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism? Uh, and then I had like this impression of like. As I'm reading, like, wow, Paul is not that great. And you actually called Paul obscured. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, that I feel like, wow, I'm, I'm just too new to to this. And also, like you're saying, you know, as, as you are researching and trying to understand, you know, you're, there was a little bit of even like confusion about, oh, what is this that we're finding, right? Um, but so anyways, all of that to say, um, and this is going to be kind of silly, But I guess it's one of the biggest cultural elements that I feel like can make this relatable to people. Because uh, also, I don't, I don't know. I hope this podcast is not just too academic. Um, so anyways, there's this guy named Loki <laughs> in the Marvel Avengers. And there's a show about Loki. And it has this thing called the TVA or the, the time... Uh, I forgot what it is, but time it's time variance authority, time variant, like time variant yeah. authority, I think. Um, so it's almost like this idea of there's a metaverse, there's different timelines, but there's got to be a master timeline where all these other timelines flow through. So a little bit of what I feel like uh, gives me uh, comfort. I don't know. Right. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of like reacting right now if some I'm, I'm trying to think about these things um is the fact that for example i had a, a podcast a few few months back but it was this this uh professor whose research was primarily on the epistles of the apostles that are found like in in the the latest books in the bible right so uh james john peter and Anyways, he's got his whole study. It's called, no, these are the Catholic epistles and we should read them as one piece rather than separate pieces and whatnot. And so one of the things I got from it, it's almost like this idea that even the disciples, like the first like face-to-face followers of Jesus, in a sense, brought people to like the master timeline. That's that's my perception. You know, I could be wrong and... um I'm kind of like open to talk about what it could mean, but it almost felt like these disciples who followed Jesus said, guys, you know, when it comes to like 
the right belief or the right practice, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, there is a master timeline, you know, and it's Jesus crucified, Jesus resurrected, Jesus in the flesh, like all these, I don't know, maybe you can even call them doctrines. But if this is like the firsthand account of the actual people that follow Jesus, I find a little bit of comfort in that, in saying, oh, if I, if these guys are giving me like, hey, don't look to the left, don't look to the right, this is the master mm -hmm. timeline. It gives me a sense of security, maybe, in, in my belief, which is weird to say, but... Uh, <laughs> um, And then, you know, I stripped down all my beliefs to two concepts, like Jesus is good and, I mean, God is good and Jesus is God. And I know those are even debatable and I'm okay with debates and I'm okay with people disagreeing. But also, uh, so what do you think about that? You know, what do you think about like th for there to be like a master timeline? Maybe don't call it Christianity, but is it necessary to have a master timeline or no? Aaron. <laughs> Yeah. Is it necessary to have a master timeline? I mean, I, I think a master timeline is an idea that we are trying to challenge in this book. And I have to say that I, I, I've watched the first few episodes of the Marvel series Loki <laughs> uh, with the, the time variance authority. And I got so confused. I, uh, I haven't watched the whole series because I, I lost track of, of Loki and the Loki variants across time. Um, but I, I'm really thrilled that you brought that up because it, it's something that, you know, I want to go back and rewatch the series and, and think about how this idea of, of time timelines and variants across time might actually help us to, to understand early Christianity. I think you're really onto something there. I love this comparison to Loki. Um, We're, we're really trying to just test this idea of, we call it a, a master narrative in the book of early Christianity for, for what it was and, and how it developed. There is this story that we've told for a long time about, um, you know, Jesus was this, this figure who lived on earth for a specific period of time. And while he was here, he, he taught some pretty amazing and revolutionary things He did some really amazing things. He he died by crucifixion, and, and after his death, the people who followed him, his students, um, responded to his death in, in different ways and, and tried to make it meaningful. Um, death by crucifixion was the, the most shameful way, or the Romans wanted it to be the most shameful way one could possibly die. Um And, and to have this event occur, um, I mean, to, to call it a, a trauma is, is an understatement. So we see his, his students trying to interpret and respond to this traumatic event to make sense of it, to continue living their lives in, in a meaningful way, um, in, in different ways. Eventually, these ways... Um, become more popular. They, they come under the eye of the empire as, as a whole. And, and we see Christianity develop into a more unified kind of process. Um, what I, I think unifies people at, at the beginning is this sense of, of struggle, this sense of, okay, this has happened. What are we going to do now? 
how are we going to work this out? And and we see this kind of debate happening in, in the early writings as well. I, I think for me, where I find the comfort is actually in that struggle and seeing the, the debate, seeing the disagreement, um, seeing the conversations that different groups were having in these early centuries as, as they tried to figure out um, just what had happened, how to understand what happened, um, and how they could live with each other in, in new and, and meaningful ways. For, for me, um, I mean, I think that says a lot about me personally as well, right? And, and it's inevitable that um, you know, even scholars aren't objective. Scholarship is not objective. That's uh, that's a myth. We um, can't separate ourselves from what we do and, and what we think, of course. Um, so for me personally, my, my own history um, with Christianity is, is one that's involved more struggle. So I find that comfort in, in seeing the struggle, seeing the debate, seeing that space that was left for, for conversation. So I, I'd like us to, to push a bit against that, that master timeline element, especially if, if we're reading forward and, and not trying to assume so much about what happens later with Christianity. But I think there is something to be said for seeing that unity in, in debate and discussion, productive discussion, for seeing that, um, that drive to form community, even though those communities look different, there was this drive to find safety together in community. Um, for me, that's where I find my comfort. Mm, wow. So good. Okay. So there's a lot, like I said, and, uh, but I want to get to soon to your opportunity to react with your own emojis or with my emojis, but no, to your own ideas and hear from you um, where you would go with those. But, um, so, ah, uh, uh, yeah, maybe something I would say is when I think of, of, uh, this idea of persuasion, right? And I think I love discussion and I love even debate because they all facilitate persuasion, right? And I, I don't know why, but we're created or... I believe we are created as humans with the capacity to choose, like you were saying. And and I think once you have this ability to choose, persuasion has like one of the biggest roles uh, a human can experience, which is it's not so much I want to convince you about my ideas, but when I think of Jesus, I think he... He was like the master persuader. Uh, I and if he is God, right? This is this is already like it's, it's it's not just an assumption. It's my belief, but let's just take it as an assumption for people that maybe Jesus is God. And if God is trying to persuade us, what is He using? And I love how you mentioned like what does the kingdom of God look like. So I'm gonna bring you on like a very personal belief. I have, and then see, you no, know, see how you even react to that, or if there's any, you no, know, you have your own opinion or whatever. Um, my personal belief, almost conviction, <laughs> is that the kingdom of God—it's God's way to persuade us to connect with Him, and the kingdom of God is manifested in human relationships that are pure in heart and that look 
for the benefit of the other rather than for with a selfish motive. So when I think of Jesus coming down to earth, not ever writing anything, like the only time I read in the, in the Gospels that Jesus is writing anything, he's writing in the sand or in the dirt. So that strikes me as, I'm going to show you a way, I'm going to persuade you, not even with, with something written, written. I'm going to persuade you with a, with a way of life. And so there's a whole lot more I can expand on because I feel like once Jesus did that and died on a cross, I don't take it almost as, I, I know he was submitted to like subjugated to, in a sense, to the circumstances. But when I read the scriptures with the perception that God is trying to persuade us to something, even like you said, you know, like uh, Paul was, was trying to persuade Agrippa uh, to belong to this party of the anointed or something. Uh, to me, the persuasion is not so much about the right belief, even though there's something in that, like I feel like we can't separate right belief with the right um, mm -hmm. action. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I feel like Jesus is trying to persuade us to a kingdom that is amazing and it's beautiful and makes humanity flourish. It makes mm -hmm. us uh, become uh, one humanity rather than, you know, whatever, you know, get, get caught up in our words and our disagreements and our dissensions. And so just, I, I'm just kind of curious, you know, how do you react to that? Have you ever, do, do you perceive that the kingdom of God could be almost like the master timeline of persuasion into a way of living? I, I think we're totally on the same page with this one. I was really when you said that the persuasion, you know, it's not about some, it's not about belief specifically, especially if we're, we're thinking about belief as somehow separate from action. Um, it's not coming to us through some kind of set of writings. I mean, most of the, the people um, in the first two centuries were illiterate. So um, reading and writing, not, not of central importance. If we're thinking about, I mean, you said human relationship, relationships between people. That's that's the, if we're thinking about the kingdom of God and, and God persuading us uh, to adhere or to belong to the kingdom of God, it's, it's based in finding relationship with others, rich and supportive relationship. I totally, totally agree. And that's that concept relationship between humans is what excited me so much about what we found throughout the course of this book project. These relationships look really different. We, we don't see one form of relationship, but we do see if, if there is something that unites these diverse groups, it is this drive to form relationships with others relationships during um, a very stressful, very traumatic time living under the violence of the Roman Empire, people trying to find connections when connections were becoming increasingly difficult. People were moving all across the empire as a result of Roman conquest. Um, different kinds of, of social forms were changing. There was a lot of instability. So people were looking to make these really basic um 
but the deepest kinds of, of connections with other humans. So in some cases, we see people making these connections through family structures. The family was a really important social entity in, in this time period. It, it looks a little different than how we think of families now, but we see early Jesus followers forming their own chosen families, so not families based on um, blood relationships of, of parents or, or siblings necessarily, but um, people from, from totally different backgrounds and families coming together and calling one another their chosen families. We see that as a really key form of, of relationship in this time. We see people using um, clubs, clubs and associations as a way to make connections and having meals together. That was such an important form of relationship um, during this time period. We see people forming connections through schools as well, um, calling themselves students and coming together to learn and make connections that way. So I think I think you're right on. I think at the core um, in these first two centuries is, is people trying to find relationships with one another. Incredible. Okay, so almost to the end, almost to the end, but uh, I feel like I still have one more before we go to the blasphemous to divine emojis. Um, <laughs> so one, uh, I just, I can't help, but I don't know, for whatever reason, as I'm reading the book, uh, I feel like this could be, again, this could be just me saying i think this is where it all started right i'm not gonna i'm not a scholar i'm just a communications guy i say maybe i follow jesus uh but and this is maybe just too spiritual or even metaphysic uh but when i think of the work of the holy spirit to me it seems like that kingdom that if jesus said he inaugurated the kingdom the kingdom of god is now here I feel like it was, it really started when the Holy Spirit came down on the first believers that it's narrated in the book of Acts, right? Mm -hmm. And in a sense, I feel like, you know, as the Spirit falls down on them and they start speaking like different tongues. And I mean, it's kind of like weird imaginary uh, images and uh, symbolisms maybe or whatever it is, but... Uh, so the spirit falls, and to me, the spirit is the truth about ourselves. Okay, and again, I'm just I'm also just speaking for myself. I'm not speaking in the name of Christianity or speaking in the name of Jesus. Oh, this is just how I interpret what what I read as a regular guy, maybe that attends a Christian church. Let's just say that, right? Um, so when I think of the the idea of the Holy Spirit, I'm like that is. That is to me where the movement of Jesus started. Not, I don't know, I know some people might call it Christianity, but I feel like the true followers of Jesus started right there. And it started, it just strikes me as I, as I read Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. And he says, the true believers or the true followers will follow me in spirit and in truth. And I feel like, what does that mean, like in lay terms, when I read that? And again, just to kind of like conclude my, my almost my my rant <laughs> or my uh, no mumbling here, is um, I think what it means to follow Jesus in spirit and in truth is that if there is a kingdom, 
if there is relationships with one another, sometimes we need to discover the truth about our intentions before we can interact with somebody else. Or, I mean, we can interact with people all the time, but if you know the true intentions, it offers for a more sincere connection with that person in all levels, in all aspects. And I feel like that is, to me, that when I think of the church, I think that is the church. Those who are discovering God. Now, I happen to think or believe that in Jesus, I find all the divinity of what those elements might be. And I, like, again, if, if they are relationships, I think they're called things like generosity, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, like all these elements that there's two ways to showcase those elements. There's the way in which you showcase them performative, in which they look like the righteous thing to do, but if your heart is not in tune with the action, I feel like it's hypocritical. Mm-hmm. But if if your heart is aligned with the action, I feel like what, that's where the true power is in our interactions. That's where the true generosity is lived out, where the true kindness, where the true forgiveness. So my last question for you uh, is, what is forgiveness to you? Wow. What is forgiveness to me? That's a that's a really <laughs> tough question to to leave me with. Um it's such an important question as well. And and I'm thinking about this question in, in terms of the book, of course, and and the discoveries that we made through the process of um researching and, and writing this book as part of the Christianity seminar. Um I personally think forgiveness means making space for each other, even if that space is, is difficult. Um, even if that space feels really challenging, um, making sure that we create that space to, um, to see others, to hear others and to value others in, in ways that we might not have anticipated I mean, we do see these early followers of Jesus, members of these parties of the anointed. We, we do see them trying to redefine um, some of the values that were central to ancient life in Greece and Rome, values that upheld the empire, values like, in that case, courage was a central virtue and value. And we see um, early Jesus followers trying to redefine what it meant to be courageous, for example. Um, so early, early martyrs, early witnesses to the Jesus story, um, you know, that was essentially a redefinition of, of courage and what it meant to be courageous, to give up your, your body like that under those circumstances. So I wonder if we can think about forgiveness in in the same kind of way think about forgiveness as a a redefinition almost of of what we think we know how we think we know other people just a a leaving of space so that we can authentically hear others and, and see others and not impose our own voices upon them 
I hope that's what we're doing in this book. We wanted as much as possible to hear voices from the past that haven't been heard as much and, and haven't been given as much importance as we think that they might be. Um, hopefully that's that's a process of forgiveness. I'll, I'll leave that up to, to you and, and to your listeners. Um, I hope that makes sense. It's a question I'm going to keep thinking about for sure. I, I think it's a question that, for me at least, um, I have to keep open-ended. It's something that I have to keep thinking about on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you, Erin, for, for sharing that. And just to, uh, ah, I, I want to conclude already, but uh, just, I feel like um, to me, there's just something almost like, I'm going to use this word that sounds weird, but something magical about uh, what I read in the book of Acts, where you have a Roman centurion coming to the house of Peter or Peter goes to, no, yeah, he comes to, to where Peter is, and Peter is in an ecstasy on the top of a roof, and then he's got a vision, and then this guy comes, and just to have almost like this this picture of the oppressor and the oppressed coming together, I mean, it's like, wow, is, is that what forgiveness is? So I'll leave it at that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. now I want to move on to, I really want to move on to your time to share with your own emojis. Oh, yeah. I want you to tell me, first of all, well, let me let you in on the on my background so you can see the emojis again. Uh, so we're going from blasphemous to divine. And this is your chance, Aaron, to tell me when you think about the early Jesus movements, what would be the most blasphemous idea you can think of? The most blasphemous idea I can think of. Yes. Um, well, I think that for some of these, I'm going to say that for some of these groups, Jesus wasn't necessarily so important to them at all. Okay. For some groups, Jesus was. For others, not so much. That sounds pretty blasphemous right there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. Okay. Um, what are you skeptical of when it comes to early movement after Jesus before Christianity? I am skeptical of the the labels and the names that we keep trying to impose on these groups. Again, because I think when we name something, that's an act of knowing that thing. We're imposing our own categories upon it. So um, I want to remain skeptical of the words that we use to name things. Wow. So good. Okay. Uh, inspired emoji. What inspired you or where do you see inspiration in the movement after Jesus before Christianity? Oh, this is the biggest one. I feel so inspired (laughs) by the people of the first two centuries, especially in terms of how they responded to living in the Roman Empire in such different ways, the different ways that they found to um, survive despite the violence and the trauma of their situations. All right. Perfect. So moving on to one to the last, holy emoji. And you can interpret holy however you want. So uh, where do you see holiness or holy in the movement after Jesus before Christianity? Um, I see holiness in the, the drive of these groups to connect with one another in meaningful 
and really supportive ways, ways that they were really trying to be equal to one another and, and share with one another and, and undo a lot of the hierarchies of their daily life. Mm, so good. All right. And lastly, <laughs> where do you see divinity or what is divine in the movement after Jesus before Christianity? And that one is still tied really closely to this finding of relationship to me. Um, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm still going to emphasize, as you say, the, the importance of, of human relationship and finding divinity in each other. Um, and, and I also see divinity in this um, rethinking of, of everyday life right if again if we're thinking of the kingdom of god um that's a concept that's meant to really challenge us and and really expand our minds and and i think that the people in the first two centuries were really trying to challenge the things that they thought they knew their social realities in new and in exciting ways and and that seems pretty divine to me love it thinking the world All right, my friends, there you have it. What an amazing conversation with Erin Burncom, one of the authors of After Jesus Before Christianity, this book I have right here in my hands. That is provocative for sure. So take a read on. You're going to have a good time and maybe lots of questions. <laughs> so If you have any more questions, send us your comments, your questions to christianpodcast.com. Visit our website. We have emojis. And by the way, I love all the spectrum of emojis. Blasphemous is one of my favorite emojis. Jesus was called a blasphemous person, actually. So I'm like, okay, if Jesus was called blasphemous, it's not that bad. <laughs> And then it's also an emoji. So why not? Arian, can you point people to where they can find more about your work and you know, your your ideas, your thoughts, and what you do? For sure, yeah. So you can find our book, After Jesus, Before Christianity, wherever books are sold um, online. Try to check out your local booksellers, retailers as much as you can these days. It's really, really important. Um, I am affiliated with the University of Toronto. You can find me there, but please also Google the Westar Institute. That's where you'll find the Christianity Seminar and all of the scholars who did the research for this really amazing project. And we're continuing it on. We have a Christianity Seminar Phase two, looking at the next couple of centuries. So stay tuned for more. Wow, there you go. Thank you, Erin, for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me.